Book Three, Chapter One of the History of Henry Esmond, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The History of Henry Esmond, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. Book Three, Chapter One. I come to an end of my battles and bruises. That feverish desire to gain a little reputation which Esmond had had left him now, perhaps that he had attained some portion of his wish, and the great motive of his ambition was over. His desire for military honor was that it might raise him in Beatrix's eyes. It was next to nobility and wealth, the only kind of rank she valued. It was the stake quickest won or lost, too, for law is a very long game that requires a life to practice, and to be distinguished in letters or the church would not have forwarded the poor gentleman's plans in the least. So he had no suit to play but the red one, and he played it. And this, in truth, was the reason of his speedy promotion, for he exposed himself more than most gentlemen do, and risked more to win more. Is he the only man that hath set his life against a stake which may not be worth the winning? Another risks his life, and is honored too sometimes, against a bundle of banknotes, or a yard of blue ribbon, or a seat in Parliament, and some, for the mere pleasure and excitement of the sport, as a field of a hundred huntsmen will do, each out bawling and out galloping the other at the tail of a dirty fox, that is to be the prize of the foremost happy conqueror. When he heard this news of Beatrix's engagement in marriage, Colonel Esmond knocked under to his fate, and resolved to surrender his sword, that could win him nothing now he cared for, and in this dismal frame of mind he determined to retire from the regiment, to the great delight of the captain next in rank to him, who happened to be a young gentleman of good fortune, who eagerly paid Mr. Esmond a thousand guineas for his majority in Webb's regiment and was knocked on the head the next campaign. Perhaps Esmond would not have been sorry to share his fate. He was more the knight of the woeful countenance than ever he had been. His moodiness must have made him perfectly odious to his friends under the tents, who like a jolly fellow, and laugh at a melancholy warrior, always sighing after Dulcinea at home. Both the ladies of Castlewood approved of Mr. Esmond quitting the army, and his kind general coincided in his wish of retirement, and helped in the transfer of his commission, which brought a pretty sum into his pocket. But when the commander-in-chief came home, and was forced in spite of himself to appoint Lieutenant-General Webb to the command of a division of the army in Flanders, the lieutenant-general prayed Colonel Esmond so urgently to be his aide-de-camp and military secretary, that Esmond could not resist his kind patron's entreaties, and again took the field, not attached to any regiment, but under Webb's orders. What must have been the continued agonies of fears and apprehensions which racked the gentle breasts of wives and matrons in those dreadful days, when every gazette brought accounts of deaths and battles, and when the present anxiety over, and the beloved person escaped, the doubt still remained that a battle might be fought possibly of which the next Flanders letter would bring the account so they, the poor tender creatures, had to go on sickening and trembling through the whole campaign. Whatever these terrors were on the part of Esmond's mistress, 
and that tenderest of women must have felt them most keenly for both her sons, as she called them. She never allowed them outwardly to appear, but hid her apprehension as she did her charities and devotion. It was only by chance that Esmond, wandering in Kensington, found his mistress coming out of a mean cottage there, and heard that she had a score of poor retainers, whom she visited and comforted in their sickness and poverty, and who blessed her daily. She attended the early church daily, though of a Sunday especially she encouraged and advanced all sorts of cheerfulness and innocent gaiety in her little household, and by notes entered into a table-book of hers at this time, and devotional compositions writ with a sweet heartless fervor, such as the best divines could not surpass, showed how fond her heart was, how humble and pious her spirit, what pangs of apprehension she endured silently, and with what a faithful reliance she committed the care of those she loved to the awful dispenser of death and life. As for her ladyship at Chelsea, Esmond's newly adopted mother, she was now of an age when the danger of any second party doth not disturb the rest much. She cared for trumps more than for most things in life. She was firm enough in her own faith, but no longer very bitter against ours. She had a very good-natured, easy French director, Monsieur Gauthier by name, who was a gentleman of the world, and would take a hand of cards with Dean Atterbury, my lady's neighbor at Chelsea, and was well with all the high church party. No doubt Monsieur Gauthier knew what Esmond's peculiar position was, for he corresponded with Holt, and always treated Colonel Esmond with particular respect and kindness. But for good reasons the Colonel and the Abbey never spoke on this matter together, and so they remained perfect good friends. All the frequenters of my lady of Chelsea's house were of the Tory and high church party, Madame Beatrix was as frantic about the king as her elderly kinswoman. She wore his picture on her heart. She had a piece of his hair. She vowed he was the most injured and gallant and accomplished and unfortunate and beautiful of princes. Steele, who quarreled with very many of his Tory friends, but never with Esmond, used to tell the colonel that his kinswoman's house was a rendezvous of Tory intrigues, that Gauthier was a spy that Atterbury was a spy, that letters were constantly going from that house to the Queen at St. Germain's, on which Esmond, laughing, would reply that they used to say in the army the Duke of Marlborough was a spy too, and as much in correspondence with that family as any Jesuit. And without entering very eagerly into the controversy, Esmond had frankly taken the side of his family. It seemed to him that King James the Third was undoubtedly King of England by right, and at his sister's death it would be better to have him more than a foreigner over us. No man admired King William more, a hero and a conqueror, the bravest, justest, wisest of men, but twas by the sword he conquered the country, and held and governed it by the very same right that the great Cromwell held it, who was truly and greatly a sovereign but that a foreign despotic prince out of Germany, who happened to be descended from King James I, should take possession of this empire, seemed to Mr. Esmond a monstrous injustice. At least every Englishman had a right to protest, and the English prince, the heir at law, the first of all. What man of spirit with such a cause would not back it? What man of honor with such a crown to win would not fight for it? But that race was destined. 
that prince had himself against him an enemy he could not overcome. He never dared to draw his sword, though he had it. He let his chances slip by as he lay in the lap of opera girls, or sneveled at the knees of priests asking pardon, and the blood of heroes, and the devotedness of honest hearts and endurance, courage, fidelity, were all spent for him in vain. But let us return to my lady of Chelsea, who, when her son Esmond announced to her ladyship that he proposed to make the ensuing campaign, took leave of him with perfect alacrity and was down to Paquet with her gentlewoman before he had well quitted the room on his last visit. Tears to a king were the last words he ever heard her say. The game of life was pretty nearly over for the good lady, and three months afterwards she took to her bed, where she flickered out without any pain. So the Abbe Gauthier wrote over to Mr. Esmond, then with his general on the frontier of France. The Lady Castlewood was with her at her ending and had written too, but these letters must have been taken by a privateer in the packet that brought them, for Esmond knew nothing of their contents until his return to England. My Lady Castlewood had left everything to Colonel Esmond as a reparation for the wrong done to him, it was read in her will, but her fortune was not much, for it never had been large, and the honest Viscountess had wisely sunk most of the money she had upon an annuity which terminated with her life. However, there was the house and furniture, plate and pictures at Chelsea, and a sum of money lying at her merchant, Sir Josiah Child, which altogether would realize a sum of near three hundred pounds per annum, so that Mr. Esmond found himself, if not rich, at least easy for life. Likewise, there were the famous diamonds, which had been said to be worth fabulous sums, though the goldsmith pronounced they would fetch no more than four thousand pounds. These diamonds, however, Colonel Esmond reserved, having a special use for them. But the Chelsea house, plate, goods, and etc., with the exception of a few articles which he kept back, were sold by his orders, and the sums resulting from the sale invested in the public securities so as to realize the aforesaid annual income of three hundred pounds. Having now something to leave, he made a will and dispatched it home. The army was now in presence of the enemy, and a great battle expected every day. It was known that the general-in-chief was in disgrace, and the parties at home strong against him, and there was no stroke this great and resolute player would not venture to recall his fortune when it seemed desperate. Frank Castlewood was with Colonel Esmond, his general having gladly taken the young nobleman on to his staff. His studies of fortifications at Bruxelles were over by this time. The fort he was besieging had yielded, I believe, and my lord had not only marched in with flying colors, but marched out again. He used to tell his boyish wickedness with admirable humor, and was the most charming young scapegrace in the army. Tis needless to say that Colonel Esmond had left every penny of his little fortune to this boy. It was the colonel's firm conviction that the next battle would put an end to him, for he felt a weary of the sun, and quite ready to bid that and the earth farewell. Frank would not listen to his comrade's gloomy forebodings, but swore they would keep his birthday at Castlewood that autumn after the campaign. He had heard of the engagement at home. If Prince Eugene goes to London, says Frank, and Trix can get hold of him, she'll jilt Ashburnham for his highness. 
I tell you, she used to make eyes at the Duke of Marlborough when she was only fourteen, and ogling poor little Blandford. I wouldn't marry her, Harry. No, not if her eyes were twice as big. I'll take my fun. I'll enjoy for the next three years every possible pleasure. I'll sow my wild oats then, and marry some quiet, steady, modest, sensible viscountess, hunt my harriers, and settle down at Castlewood. Perhaps I'll represent the county. No, damn. You shall represent the county. You have the brains of the family. By the Lord, my dear old Harry, you have the best head and the kindest heart in all the army, and every man says so. And when the queen dies and the king comes back, why shouldn't you go to the House of Commons and be a minister, and be made a peer, and that sort of thing? You be shot in the next action? I wager a dozen of Burgundy you are not touched. Mohun is well of his wound. He is always with Corporal John now. As soon as ever I see his ugly face, I'll spit in it. I took lessons of father of Captain Holt at Bruxelles. What a man that is! He knows everything. Esmond bade Frank have a care, that Father Holt's knowledge was rather dangerous, not indeed knowing as yet how far the father had pushed his instructions with his young pupil. The gazetteers and writers, both of the French and English side, have given accounts sufficient of that bloody battle of Blargenes, or Malplaquet, which was the last and the hardest earned of the victories of the great Duke of Marlborough. In that tremendous combat, near upon 250,000 men were engaged, more than 30,000 of whom were slain or wounded. The Allies lost twice as many men as they killed of the French, whom they conquered. And this dreadful slaughter very likely took place because a great general's credit was shaken at home, and he thought to restore it by a victory. If such were the motives which induced the Duke of Marlborough to venture that prodigious stake and desperately sacrifice thirty thousand brave lives, so that he might figure once more in a gazette and hold his places and pensions a little longer, the event defeated the dreadful and selfish design, for the victory was purchased at a cost which no nation, greedy of glory as it may be, would willingly pay for any triumph. The gallantry of the French was as remarkable as the furious bravery of their assailants. We took a few score of their flags and a few pieces of their artillery, but we left twenty thousand of the bravest soldiers of the world round about the entrenched lines from which the enemy was driven. He retreated in perfect good order. The panic spell seemed to be broke, under which the French had labored ever since the disaster of Hochstedt and fighting now on the threshold of their country, they showed an heroic ardor of resistance such as had never met us in the course of their aggressive war. Had the battle been more successful, the conqueror might have got the price for which he waged it, as it was, and justly, I think, the party adverse to the Duke in England were indignant at the lavish extravagance of slaughter and demanded more eagerly than ever the recall of a chief whose cupidity and desperation might urge him further still. After this bloody fight of Malplaquet, I can answer for it that in the Dutch quarters and our own, and amongst the very regiments and commanders whose gallantry was most conspicuous upon this frightful day of carnage, the general cry was that there was enough of the war. The French were driven back into their own boundary, and all their conquests and booty of Flanders disgorged. 
As for the Prince of Savoy, with whom our commander-in-chief, for reasons of his own, consorted more closely than ever, t'was known that he was animated not merely by a political hatred, but by personal rage against the old French king, the imperial generalissimo, never forgot the slight put by Louis upon the Abbey de Savoy, and in the humiliation or ruin of his most Christian majesty, the holy Roman emperor found this account. But what were these quarrels to us, the free citizens of England and Holland? Despot as he was, the French monarch was yet the chief of European civilization, more venerable in his age and misfortunes than at the period of his most splendid successes, whilst his opponent was but a semi-barbarous tyrant, with a pillaging murderous horde of croats and pandours, composing a half of his army, filling our camp with their strange figures, bearded like the miscreant Turks their neighbors, and carrying into Christian warfare their native heathen habits of rapine, lust, and murder. Why should the best blood in England and France be shed in order that the holy Roman and apostolic master of these ruffians should have his revenge over the Christian king? And it was to this end we were fighting, for this that every village and family in England were deploring the death of beloved sons and fathers. We dared not speak to each other, even at table, of Malapliqué, so frightful were the gaps left in our army by the cannon of that bloody action. T'was heartrending for an officer who had a heart to look down his line on a parade day afterwards and miss hundreds of faces of comrades, humble or of high rank, that had gathered but yesterday full of courage and cheerfulness round the torn and blackened flags. Where were our friends? as the great duke reviewed us, riding along our lines with his fine suite of prancing aides-de-camp and generals, stopping here and there to thank an officer with those eager smiles and bows of which his grace was always lavish, scarce a huzza could be got for him. Though Cadogan, with an oath, rode up and cried, Damn you, why don't you cheer? But the man had no heart for that. Not one of them but was thinking, Where's my comrade? Where's my brother that fought by me, or my dear captain that led me yesterday? T'was the most gloomy pageant I ever looked on, and the te deum sung by our chaplains the most woeful and dreary satire. Esmond's general added one more to the many marks of honor which he had received in the front of a score of battles, and got a wound in the groin which laid him on his back and you may be sure he consoled himself by abusing the commander-in-chief as he lay groaning. Corporal John's as fond of me, he used to say, as King David was of General Uriah, and so he always gives me the post of danger. He persisted to his dying day in believing that the duke intended he should be beat at Wynendale, and sent him purposely with a small force, hoping that he might be knocked on the head there. Esmond and Frank Castlewood both escaped without hurt, though the division which our general commanded suffered even more than any other, having to sustain not only the fury of the enemy's cannonade, which was very hot and well served, but the furious and repeated charges of the famous Maison du Roy, which he had to receive and beat off again and again, with volleys of shot and hedges of iron, and our four lines of musketeers and pikemen. They said the King of England charged us no less than twelve times that day, along with the French household. 
Esmond's late regiment, General Webb's own fusiliers, served in the division which their colonel commanded. The general was thrice in the center of the square of the fusiliers, calling the fire at the French charges, and, after the action, his grace the Duke of Berwick sent his compliments to his old regiment and their colonel for their behavior on the field. We drank my Lord Castlewood's health and majority the 25th of September, the army being then before Mons, and here Colonel Esmond was not so fortunate as he had been in actions much more dangerous, and was hit by a spent ball just above the place where his former wound was, which caused the old wound to open again, fever, spitting of blood, and other ugly symptoms to ensue, and in a word brought him near to death's door. The kind lad, his kinsman, attended his elder comrade with a very praiseworthy affectionateness and care until he was pronounced out of danger by the doctors when Frank went off, passed the winter at Bruxelles, and besieged, no doubt, some other fortress there. Very few lads would have given up their pleasures so long and so gaily as Frank did. His cheerful prattle soothed many long days of Esmond's pain and languor. Frank was supposed to be still at his kinsman's bedside for a month after he had left it, for letters came from his mother at home full of thanks to the younger gentleman for his care of his elder brother. So it pleased Esmond's mistress now affectionately to style him. Nor was Mr. Esmond in a hurry to undeceive her when the good young fellow was gone for his Christmas holiday. It was as pleasant to Esmond on his couch to watch the young man's pleasure at the idea of being free as to note his simple efforts to disguise his satisfaction on going away. There are days when a flask of champagne at a cabaret and red-cheeked partner to share it are too strong temptations for any young fellow's spirit. I am not going to play the moralist and cry fee, for ages past I know how old men preach and what young men practice, and that patriarchs have had their weak moments too. Long since, Father Noah toppled over after discovering the vine. Frank went off then to his pleasures at Bruxelles, in which capital many young fellows of our army declared they found infinitely greater diversion even than in London, and Mr. Henry Esmond remained in his sick-room, where he writ a fine comedy that his mistress pronounced to be sublime, and that was acted no less than three successive nights in London in the next year. Here, as he lay nursing himself, ubiquitous Mr. Holt reappeared, and stopped a whole month at Mons, where he not only won over Colonel Esmond to the king's side in politics, that side being always held by the Esmond family, but where he endeavored to reopen the controversial question between the churches once more, and to recall Esmond to that religion in which, in his infancy, he had been baptized. Holt was a casuist, both dexterous and learned, and presented the case between the English church and his own in such a way that those who granted his premises ought certainly to allow his conclusions. He touched on Esmond's delicate state of health, chance of dissolution, and so forth, and enlarged upon the immense benefits that the sick man was likely to forego, benefits which the Church of England did not deny to those of the Roman Communion, as how should she, being derived from that Church, and only an offshoot from it. But Mr. Esmond said that his Church was the Church of his country, 
and to that he chose to remain faithful. Other people were welcome to worship and to subscribe any other set of articles, whether at Rome or at Augsburg. But if the good father meant that Esmond should join the Roman communion for fear of consequences, and that all England ran the risk of being damned for heresy, Esmond, for one, was perfectly willing to take his chance of the penalty along with the countless millions of his fellow countrymen, who were bred in the same faith, and along with some of the noblest, the truest, the purest, the wisest, the most pious and learned men and women in the world. As for the political question, in that Mr. Esmond could agree with the father much more readily, and had come to the same conclusion, though perhaps by a different way, the right divine about which Dr. Sacaberell and the High Church Party in England were just now making a bother, they were welcome to hold as they chose. If Richard Cromwell and his father before him had been crowned and anointed, and bishops enough would have been found to do it, it seemed to Mr. Esmond that they would have had the right divine just as much as any Platygenet or Tudor or Stuart. But the desire of the country being unquestionably for an hereditary monarchy, Esmond thought an English king out of St. Germain's was better and fitter than a German prince from Herrenhausen, and that if he failed to satisfy the nation, some other Englishman might be found to take his place. And so, though with no frantic enthusiasm, or worship of that monstrous pedigree which the Tories chose to consider divine, he was ready to say, God save King James, when Queen Anne went the way of kings and commoners. I fear, Colonel, you are no better than a Republican at heart, says the priest with a sigh. I am an Englishman, says Harry, and take my country as I find her. The will of the nation being for church and king, I am for church and king too, but English church and English king. And that is why your church isn't mine, though your king is. Though they lost the day at Malapuquet, it was the French who were elated by that action, whilst the conquerors were dispirited by it, and the enemy gathered together a larger army than ever, and made prodigious efforts for the next campaign. Marshal Berwick was with the French this year, and we heard that Marischal Villers was still suffering of his wound, was eager to bring our duke to action, and vowed he would fight us in his coach. Young Castlewood came flying back from Bruxelles as soon as he heard that fighting was to begin, and the arrival of the Chevalier de St. George was announced about May. It's the king's third campaign, and it's mine, Frank liked saying. He was come back a greater Jacobite than ever, and Esmond suspected that some fair conspirators at Bruxelles had been inflaming the young man's ardor. Indeed, he owned that he had a message from the queen, Beatrix's godmother, who had given her name to Frank's sister the year before he and his sovereign were born. However desirous Marshal Villers might be to fight, my lord duke did not seem disposed to indulge him this campaign. Last year his grace had been all for the Whigs and Hanoverians, but finding on going to England his country cold towards himself, and the people in a ferment of high church loyalty, the duke comes back to his army cooled towards the Hanoverians, cautious with the imperialists, and particularly civil and polite towards the Chevalier de St. George. 
"'Tis certain that messengers and letters were continually passing between his grace and his brave nephew, the Duke of Berwick, in the opposite camp. No man's caresses were more opportune than his grace's, and no man ever uttered expressions of regard and affection more generously. He professed to Monsieur de Torcy, so Mr. St. John told the writer, quite an eagerness to be cut in pieces for the exiled queen and her family. Nay more, I believe, this year he parted with a portion of the most precious part of himself, his money, which he sent over to the royal exiles. Mr. Tunstall, who was in the prince's service, was twice or thrice in and out of our camp, the French in theirs of Arleu and about Arras. A little river, the Kanaihi, I think, was called, but this is writ away from books in Europe, and the only map the writer hath of these scenes of his youth bears no mark of this little stream, divided our pickets from the enemies. Our sentries talked across the stream when they could make themselves understood to each other, and when they could not, grinned and handed each other their brandy flasks or their pouches of tobacco. And one fine day of June, riding thither with the officer who visited the outpost, Colonel Esmond was taking an airing on horseback, being too weak for military duty, they came to this river where a number of English and Scots were assembled, talking to the good-natured enemy on the other side. Esmond was especially amused with the talk of one long fellow, with a great curling red moustache and blue eyes that was half a dozen inches taller than his swarthy little comrades on the French side of the stream, and being asked by the colonel, saluted him, and said that he belonged to the royal cravats. From his way of saying royal cravat, Esmond at once knew that the fellow's tongue had first wagged on the banks of the Liffey, and not the Loire and the poor soldier, a deserter probably, did not like to venture very deep into French conversation, lest his unlucky brogue should peep out. He chose to restrict himself to such few expressions in the French language as he thought he had mastered easily, and his attempt at disguise was infinitely amusing. Mr. Esmond whistled Le Bolero, at which Teague's eyes began to twinkle, and then flung him a dollar, when the poor boy broke out with, a God bless, that is due beneath Voltaire honor, that would infallibly have sent him to the provost-marshal had he been on our side of the river. Whilst this party was going on, three officers on horseback on the French side appeared at some little distance, and stopped as if eyeing us, when one of them left the other two and rode close up to us who were by the stream. Look, look, says the royal cravat, with great agitation. Pas-lui, that's he, not him, le l'autre, and appointed to the distant officer on a chestnut horse, with a curant shining in the sun, and over it a broad blue ribbon. Please to take Mr. Hamilton's services to my Lord Marlborough, my Lord Duke, says the gentleman in English, and looking to see that the party were not hostily disposed, he added with a smile, There's a friend of yours, gentlemen, yonder, he bids me to say that he saw some of your faces on the 11th of September last year. As the gentleman spoke, the other two officers rode up and came quite close. We knew at once who it was. It was the king, then two and twenty years old, tall and slim, with deep brown eyes that looked melancholy, though his lips wore a smile. We took off our hats and saluted him. 
no man sure could see for the first time without emotion the youthful inheritor of so much fame and misfortune it seemed to mr esmond that the prince was not unlike young castlewood whose age and figure he resembled the chevalier de st george acknowledged the salute and looked at us hard even the idlers on our side of the river set up a hurrah as for the royal cravat he ran to the prince's stirrup knelt down and kissed his boot and bawled and looked a hundred ejaculations and blessings the prince bade the aide-de-camp give him a piece of money and when the party saluting us had ridden away cravat spat upon the piece of gold by way of benediction and swaggered away pouching his coin and twirling his honest carroty moustache the officer in whose company esmond was the same little captain of handyside's regiment mr stern who had proposed the garden at lily when my lord mohun and esmond had that affair was an irishman too and as brave a little soul as ever wore a sword bedad says roger stern that long fellow spoke french so beautiful that i shouldn't have known he wasn't a foreigner till he broke out with his hullabalooing and only an irish calf can bellow like that and roger made another remark in his wild way in which there was sense as well as absurdity if that young gentleman says he would but ride over to our camp instead of villars toss up his hat and say here am i the king who'll follow me by the lord esmond the whole army would rise and carry him home again and beat villars and take paris by the way the news of the prince's visit was all through the camp quickly and scores of hours went down in hopes to see him major hamilton whom we had talked with sent back by trumpet several silver pieces for officers with us mr esmond received one of these and that medal and a recompense not uncommon amongst princes were the only rewards he ever had from a royal person whom he endeavored not very long after to serve esmond quitted the army almost immediately after this following his general home and indeed being advised to travel in the fine weather and attempt to take no further part in the campaign but he heard from the army that of the many who crowded to see the chevalier de st george frank castlewood had made himself most conspicuous my lord viscount riding across the little stream bareheaded to where the prince was and dismounting and kneeling before him to do him homage some said that the prince had actually knighted him but my lord denied that statement though he acknowledged the rest of the story and said from having been out of favor with corporal john as he called the duke before his grace warned him not to commit those follies and smiled on him cordially ever after and he was so kind to me frank writ that i thought i would put in a good word for master harry but when i mentioned your name he looked as black as thunder and said he had never heard of you End of Book 3, Chapter 1 Recording by Ralph Snelson